$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. I just watched an interview with Alice Waters, who describes herself as a chef, author, food activist, and the owner of Chez Restaurant in Berkeley. She's often referred to as the creator of California cuisine back in the 70s. At one point in the conversation, she explained how when she meets people, she will sometimes begin by bringing out food, say fresh fruit, and taste the food together with the other person. She explained how this shared sensory experience was an alternate and perhaps more effective way of creating connection between people. It really made me think, wow, is that something we could do in user research? Could you begin an interview by sharing a sensory experience with someone? It could be taste via food, as Alice Waters did, but it could be a touch experience, a moment of smelling, a shared point of listening. I would want to understand more about what Waters believes this accomplishes, and if it's conjecture or there's any more evidence. I don't really have any idea how to introduce something like this into an already hesitant dynamic, that initial moment. And with all, hopefully all, research happening remotely at the moment, is there some sort of shared over-distance aspect of this? A sensory experience that both parties could initiate? Maybe it could be entirely pedestrian, such as feeling the glass of a mobile device, versus something celebratory like a piece of fruit selected by Alice Waters. I don't know what this would lead to, but I'll be curious to hear what happens for people to try it. And as well, it serves to remind me that all too often, I neglect including all the senses in how I process the world and how I engage with others. This is another episode without either a professional editor or transcriptionist. And this podcast is my way to contribute at this particular moment. But I hope you can keep me and my practice in mind for collaborating on research, for coaching, for training, and other work to help advance the maturity of your organization's research practice wherever you're at currently. Now, let's get to my interview with Noam Siegel, who's the Director of Research at Wealthfront. Noam, thanks for being on Dollars to Donuts. It's really great to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So my typical way of beginning, which we can do today, is just to ask, uh, ask you to introduce yourself. Sure. So my name's Noam Siegel. And I am currently on parental leave, actually, um, with my six-month-old uh, baby boy, Dean. Um, but when I'm not on leave, I'm Director of User Research at Wealthfront. So that's what I'm currently up to. Um, I'm originally from Israel, although I don't sound like it because my parents are both English and somehow I inherited uh, the British accent. Um, and I moved to the U.S. in 2012 uh, with my wife um, for graduate school originally. Um, I got my PhD in psychology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And when I graduated, we decided to move to the Bay Area and uh, both pursue positions in tech. And I've been in UX research uh, ever since and uh, have worked for Airbnb, Intercom, and again, these days, Wealthfront. How did you find out about uh, UX research? As an Israeli, we have mandatory military service, and I served in a unit within the Israeli Air Force for most of my, my service. That particular unit is in charge of Israel's missile defense systems. 
And when I left the military, uh, got discharged, I decided to join the military industries, kind of the Israeli equivalent of maybe uh, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, those sorts of companies. And I focused on developing the the UX, that we didn't call it UX at the time, of these missile defense systems, primarily the arrow weapon system, which is a system designed to protect Israel from medium to long range missiles. This could not be more different than what I do today, a very little relationship, but that's when I really started appreciating and desiring to be in in this field of UX more broadly. That was my focus. I focused on the interface. I focused on understanding from the operators of these systems what they what they need and it was an incredible six-year learning experience uh so that's kind of how i got into it in the first place uh, later on i wanted to improve my my research uh, abilities and and knowledge and i was definitely considering going into academia for a while so that led me to the phd program but at some point in year four of the phd i realized that i love two things i love research and being a researcher and i love technology and there is a profession that marries those two things quite perfectly and that is ux research so I decided to shift my focus back to industry and, and go into work uh, at first with Airbnb and carried on ever since. Did you finish the PhD? I did. Uh, it was hectic time in my life. I was in the middle of my fourth year in what's typically a six-year program. That said, it's typically a six-year program because of how difficult the academic job market is rather than how long it actually takes to finish a dissertation. And I realized, and there were also some events in our lives, both personal and professional, that I want to take a different path from academia. And so I interviewed with several, especially Bay Area uh, companies, and was fortunate enough to get a couple of offers, and decided to fast track the rest of my, my dissertation. And I proposed the research I was going to do in January. And I defended my dissertation on June 1st of 2016. And less than 24 hours later, we were on a plane to San Francisco to start life in the Bay Area. So it was a crazy period in our lives. And mm. I'm rather happy it was over because it was quite difficult. But yes, I did. I did graduate. It was very important for me to finish the program. And I benefited great from uh, my studies, my relationship with my advisor and all of my fellow students at Illinois uh, really appreciate that time. It taught me more than I could ever imagine. So maybe I can just go back. So you kind of described this, you know, we have like bookends maybe of a narrative here where at the beginning you are in the army and kind of looking at, at those things. And at the end of this chapter, anyway, you're getting on an airplane to San Francisco to enter the Bay Area, user research roles. But I'm wondering, going back to when you were in the Army, you started, as you said, you, you didn't refer to it as UX. So I'm wondering, when did the research part, like that this was a thing that needed to be done, that could be done, that you could pursue as an actual job? Is there a point at which that started to enter your consciousness? So when I was in the military industries, I wasn't in a research role officially. And... I also wasn't particularly aware of the realm of UX research, but 
UX research is not really an existing profession in Israel, um, a separate function. Typically in Israeli startup companies, it'll be the founders or perhaps the designers that do the research. And so I was not in, in a research role, but I was working in a very small team trying to develop systems that were completely new to the world, incredibly complex, and the stakes couldn't be higher. These are systems that are uh, enabling Israel to defend itself from potential nuclear attacks. Um, it really is life or death. I mean, in industry and in tech, uh, perhaps you've heard this before, we often use militaristic terms, um, like we have war rooms if we launch uh, a new product, or we conduct a post-mortem uh, when something goes wrong and engineering have to figure out what happened. But I really was in in a company, in a team where the stakes were incredibly high. And that requires uh, research, whether you're in that official role or, or not. I was in a unique position where on the one hand, I was working in this team as a civilian, speaking to people who operate the system, thinking about the user experience. Um, this is a system where people have, in some cases, just a few seconds to make very critical decisions and failure is simply not an option. But on the other hand, I was also an operator myself. So I was still in the reserves, still serving in the military, still doing one or two days a month in some cases in the unit uh, as a reserve uh, soldier. And so I got to see and experience these systems from those two two sides of, of the coin, which was very, very interesting. And obviously this happens to, to us as well here in the Bay Area. Often we are using the systems we're also developing. That's quite common. Um, but that was the first time that happened to me. And I think one thing that really struck me developing these systems, and I think it's part of the reason I decided to move on, is that I really truly believe that failure is a critical component of learning. And failure is not really an option when what you're developing is missile, a missile defenses. And that's a very heavy weight to carry on your shoulders for anyone who's part of that sort of team. It's a huge responsibility. It's not the type of iterative work that we do uh, in the Bay Area. You cannot fail often and, and learn, you know, move quickly and break things. Uh, you, you can't do that when you're in that type of industry. And so on the one hand, it was an incredible experience and really my first uh, venture into UX. And on the other hand, I really needed to move on in order to become a better researcher and a better professional within the UX research community. So, And what did you do for undergraduate? So I went to a small kind of liberal arts college in Israel and I studied psychology as my major and I took kind of media communications as my, my minor. I was in the first cohort of psychology studies at this college. They just opened the psychology school the year I started. And maybe, maybe it's a personality thing, but I love to be part of new programs, new things, new ventures. And though I had other options to, to go study at more established universities, which you may have heard of, Tel Aviv University is an example. I really wanted to join this, this new program. And I have to say it benefited me greatly. The learning experience was incredible. We were a very small 
cohort of people. We had very close relationships with our professors. And the fact that I went there was a big part of, I think, why I ended up getting into graduate school in the US and being able to make this move and end up where where I am to, today. So it was a, a wonderful undergraduate experience, very small campus, my first time moving out of my, my parents' house and, and experiencing a lot of, lot of new things. I really appreciate that that time and the psychology, the the foundations of psychology it gave me, which were very helpful later on and until today, really. Tell me what kind of company Wealthfront is. Wealthfront, I would say, has been through a few different periods, different stages. It began as a platform where you can invest your money uh, passively, passively invest your money in in the markets. Later on, Wealthfront added uh, planning features to enable people to plan for their financial future. And most recently, Wealthfront has added uh, a cash account, a high interest uh, cash account. And later on in the year, we'll also be launching a, a bank account for our clients. And so I would say in general, what we're trying to do at Wealthfront is provide people with incredibly sophisticated tools to manage their finances, manage their investments, manage their cash, plan for their future, and hopefully achieve their, their life goals uh, through, through well-planned and invested finances. What's the research practice like at Wealthfront? So it's interesting you should use the term research practice because research at Wealthfront is quite different than what I experienced uh, elsewhere. Um, first of all, when I joined Wealthfront, uh, the research team was not the UX research team. It was the team uh, in charge of the, the algorithms uh, and the math powering our passive investment uh, engine. And these days that team is called uh, the data science team. And there's a research component to that. So in fintech, research actually means something different than in, in most other companies. And that took getting uh, used to for me. But research, UX research at Wealthfront is an interesting topic because as a practice, it has existed since the company started. And everyone from the founders of the company to uh, later on, PMs and designers at Wealthfront have all been conducting a variety of research projects, methods, and staying connected and trying to understand and best help our clients and our potential clients. But user research as a function didn't really exist at Wealthfront before I joined uh, just over a year ago. So I'm the first person at Wealthfront with user research in his title. That's maybe not completely accurate because my manager, uh, Apeksha, who is VP of design at Wealthfront, actually started out as a researcher, but she transitioned into a design role quite a, a while ago. And I was the first person since to join as a researcher. So as a practice, it's existed for, for over a decade. As a function, what I'm trying to do at Wealthfront is really build out research as a function, which means a bunch of things. But really, the point here is that research at Wealthfront is incredibly democratized, and I very much support that approach. And so by democratized, I mean that we're all running research, trying to better understand our clients and potential clients, 
uh, everyone from PMs to designers, researchers, obviously, engineers, data scientists, marketing, we're all trying to to understand our clients and we're all taking part in that process in some way, shape or or form. And so I view my role in many cases and user research's role as an enabler, as a coach, as augmenting other efforts already happening in in the company and really maximizing the returns we we get on on the research we we do. What are some things that you do uh, in coach examples or it's a, such a powerful word what are ways that you are coaching? Yeah, so we are currently two user researchers on the team and soon to be a third uh, hopefully. Uh, we're currently in a uh, in a weird situation, all of us, as we're recording this with uh, COVID-19 out there and a global pandemic. But we are growing the function of user research. Until then, and regardless of that, we hope to enable, especially designers and PMs more than anyone else, to to do better research. And to do that, we're, we're using a few different techniques. One of them is creating a lot of materials in our internal company wiki around best practices for a variety of of methods and research techniques. Um, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel every time and uh, rethink how we should uh, conduct a usability test or what best practices for interviews are or what type of satisfaction metrics we can use, and et cetera, et cetera. And so the first step there is to make sure those materials are out there for everyone to consume. And that's a work in progress for us. Um, the second thing is running uh, workshops or, or interactive lessons, webinars, whatever, whatever it takes to um, engage with various teams within the company and enable them to learn uh, in a group setting about research best practices and how they can level up their research. And then another technique or another way we do this is indeed just one-on-one coaching with designers, with with PMs. We started doing that a bit. I hope when I get back from parental leave to continue doing that. There's a lot of interest from many people in the company to have such sessions and get feedback on on their research sessions and what could be better and what should what should remain the same because it's already great. Um, our designers and PMs are well-versed in research and they've conducted countless research sessions of all sorts. But there's always something to learn for all of us. And so through those various methods, whether it's on an internal wiki or whether it's in a group setting or whether it's in a one-on-one coaching session, we believe that through those various ways of coaching and teaching, we can all do better research. Uh, not to mention teaching is maybe one of the best ways of of learning, in my opinion. And so one benefit I feel of being a coach and an enabler and, and a teacher is that you have to constantly reevaluate and rethink what you're doing and the, about the methods you're using, about the best practices, about the principles behind your research, uh, everything you're trying to to accomplish, and I'm really happy about that because I'm I'm not sure 
as a community within user research, we're doing that enough necessarily. So I think it's it's a it's a positive side effect of of taking that coaching approach. Sorry, what what is it that we're not as a community overall doing enough? Debatable, but I'm I'm referring to revisiting the methods and techniques that we're using as as researchers user research or ux research methodology discussions is there anything specific that you're thinking of that is unexamined that needs to be reconsidered or revisited well i'm curious to hear your opinion as well i feel like many of the techniques or frameworks we're using in user research and one specific example i can give is jobs to be done which I really learned the most about in my time at Intercom. Most of those techniques and methods are taken from other realms, such as marketing. In the case of, in the case of jobs to be done, it really started out more then. It was kind of imported into the world of, of software development and, and product. And I wonder if, I do often wonder if there's more room for user research specific methodological discussions and innovation around the, the methods uh, we use. I think broadly speaking, I haven't seen much of that. And I think it's debatable whether that's needed or not. But I think that as we develop new tools, new ways of working. Uh, remote research is a classic example right now, given the global pandemic we're in. There's also a need to establish potentially new methods uh, to go with that reality, with those technologies, and think about how we do how we do research. The fact that many of our methods and frameworks are imported from other realms is maybe just partially a sign of how long UX research has been going on as a distinct profession and function. But maybe it's a time for us to to branch out ourselves and, and dive more deeply into, into those methods we use. What's the granularity of a method? Like jobs to be done to me, and, and I know you're talking about methods and frameworks. You know, I'm just thinking there's there's like remote research is an umbrella term for a certain set of things. Jobs to be done is, and I'm thinking about, you know, we talk about innovating in the methods. I'm just not sure. We all, that's such a great word and problematic because we all think it means something different. So, right, I'm thinking about uh, some of the things that have come up in remote research when people were saying, and I, I'm not going to have this exactly right, but how can I see my screen and the other person's screen if they're on a mobile device? And then People have come up with various solutions and sort of technologies and ways to hook up different pieces together so that you can remotely have a certain kind of interaction. Is Would we consider that an innovation in the methods? So I view that example as more of the medium than the method. Yeah. So if we take eye tracking as a method, because I do consider eye tracking a, a method, and maybe one way to define a method, given that, is a way to, I was going to say like a way to gather insights, but that's also the, the medium, right? So let's kind of scratch that for a second. And So thinking about eye tracking, eye tracking can be done in person, and it can also be done remotely. So that component, the, the in-person or remote component, that to me is not an inherent or, or core part of eye tracking as a method. I think what makes eye tracking a method or, or the point 
is that it enables us to glean certain insight by measurement of where people are are focusing their attention, what people are prioritizing, what people are going back to, etc. And we can take that a few steps further. We know already that what people say is only a, a certain part of the picture. And other parts like uh, body language and other ways in which people convey sentiment are not conveyed in verbal form. And so I'm personally very interested in uh, kind of sentiment analysis within interviews, because I think that would add a lot of richness to, to what we do as researchers. And we're starting to see the technologies that could enable such methods of sentiment analysis within qualitative research to happen. I haven't seen much of that research go on. I'm certainly not doing it myself. Um, I don't think we have adopted the technologies at Wellfront to conduct that type of research, but I find it intriguing. So that would be an example for me of, of a method, in this case, sentiment analysis, um, it's a novel uh, implementation of that method um, because we've been doing sentiment analysis for uh, text for a while now and and we can take a bunch of tweets or take a bunch of uh, feedback from the app store and analyze it for, for certain sentiment. But within one-on-one interviews, whether remote or in person, I don't think I've seen much, if any, of that happening. And so that would be an example of a methodological innovation in my mind that we could be thinking about moving forward. There are also, in the realm of psychology, for example, in academia, I mean, there are a bunch of researchers who are dedicated to, to methodology, essentially, or things like developing new statistical methods or packages for platforms like R. Um, to enable others to analyze their data better and do more rigorous science and get better results. We don't really have that function, I would suggest, in UX research. We have researchers. Research ops has been on on the rise for a few years now as and is an incredibly important component of research. Um, I don't think... I've seen anyone claim the title or show particular interest in UX research methodology as a focus, as a professional focus, whether it's within any particular company or research team, or whether it's, uh, you know, a freelancer who doesn't, who isn't affiliated with any particular company. So that to me is another, another potential step our field could move towards um, to advance our methods and methodological understanding. Not sure I plan to dive so deeply into that, but tell me if you find it interesting or not. Um, oh, I find it just really, really interesting. And, you know, it, it evokes for me, I mean, just your, your proposal that we're not innovating within UX research around methods is just, it's a strong point of view. And I don't, I don't disagree. I just hadn't really ever thought of that. It just reminds me of, uh, you know, in, in my trajectory, a very early era for me when um, it felt like there were lots of innovative methods. And so a couple of things come to mind that maybe I'll just throw out and see, you know, how this fits into your, you know, what's innovative, what's sort of, uh, what's a method, what's a medium. 
I'm thinking about uh, Bill Gaver, who I think was at Xerox Park or at Euro Park at the time. I can't really remember. And I may, those both might be wrong, but he came up with something called cultural probes, which is, and I'm also not going to get this right, but it was, I mean, a form of a diary study, but you were kind of creating kits to send to people. So it was asynchronous. It was at a distance. It was analog, but not necessarily analog, if I'm recalling it properly. And maybe some of those things we don't, you know, something's an innovation and then it just becomes every day. I mean, I'm describing putting a packet together of things and sending to people. Well, you know, if you go back to when we had before digital cameras for a while, there were disposable cameras and they were cheap and you could like just buy them and send them off to people and uh, they would take pictures and send them back. And, you know, now we have D-Scout. There's a platform for recording your own video. So the technology changes and, you know, this idea of cultural probes, which is like a pretty great term, I always thought it, it doesn't feel innovative anymore. You know, it came out of came out of academia or kind of the academic labs in industry. There was a group in Europe, don't off the top of my head know what the what the source is, but I'll look it up. They had a, a method called uh, moving with a magic thing. And that was basically, uh, if you wanted to understand a behavior, you handed somebody a block of wood. And I think you either described to them what functionality it would have, or they, I don't remember whether you determined or they determined, but they would carry it around for a while and then come back and report on what it changed for them, even though you were... So now we have, you know, we have a minimum viable product or we have, you know, a paper prototype. Um, We have lots of ways of sort of creating the appearance of of capability. But this was very, I mean, sort of uh, a little hand wavy and very European and sort of rooted in in, in a period in the late 90s, early 2000s, those felt exciting to me at the time. And then they are, so I don't know, I guess, I don't know if you've heard of those things or how they kind of fit into your thoughts about what methods are and what it means for methods to be innovative. And is that changing just, you know, as decades fly by? So it's a question I'm not even sure I have the the answer to. I think we have to ask ourselves where is the bar or what's the tipping point where we can say that we have innovated on a method? And dive studies are a perfect example. You just mentioned them. Um, dive studies have been going on for decades now. And as you mentioned, they started out with people sending physical packets to to other people's mailboxes and waiting for responses and, and just doing that, you know, a few times until they, they get the results they need. And indeed, these days we have modern, fantastic platforms like DScout for Diary Studies, and they have completely uh, digitized uh, all of the, the process and have also added a bunch of functionality that was obviously not available to to researchers back in 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 uh in previous decades uh, such as video responses for example which offer an incredible richness to to uh, our our clients our users uh, responses and to our understanding of what they need and what they want from our product um but i think that also begs the question uh, is that a fundamentally different method or is that an innovation on 
on the method that was used previously by sending people a a letter or a packet in the mail or not. And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I think it could be very, very subjective. In my opinion, I think it it's fair to say that diary studies haven't fundamentally changed in a while now. Should they? I don't know. But as a method, I'm not sure it's it's evolved enough where we can say that we've completely innovated or, or we've reached a new era in diary studies. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you're, I agree with you acknowledging that some of this is not, it's not answerable, at least, you know, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to answer. That's my job here, but yeah, you yeah. also are acknowledging like, yeah, we can't really answer that. And I don't disagree at all. And I think that's a good, I'm starting to sort of, sort of see like, yeah, diary studies are diary studies and we do them differently and they're richer and we have, you know, the, the pace is different and so on, but it's still the same kind of interaction with people. We're trying to get a certain kind of information you know, talk about sentiment analysis versus just an in-person interview. That's a very different type of data that's being pulled into, into the research uh, that I think we're not getting now. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what though, when I was in graduate school, I was in the social personality division within the psychology department. And obviously social and personality psychologists uh, differ quite a bit in what they find most important. Social psychologists are focusing on the effects of the situation and the context people are in, whereas personality psychologists are focusing on individual differences and characteristics and how they drive uh, variation in in behavior and outcomes in, in real life. I think one thing that has potentially greatly uh, affected and and maybe this is an innovation in say diary studies is the fact that people are still mostly self-reporting whether it's in text or or video but they're doing so on a mobile device and they're doing so in various places and contexts which we know because uh you know potentially we can get that information as well. Uh, so these days, as we can all imagine, there's a lot of information about each of us out there online and our behaviors. It's a very rich data set. Um, it raises great ethical uh, questions, security questions, other questions about how we all want to, to live our lives. Um, but the fact is, today more than ever before, there's a lot more data out there, not just about what we're reporting and and what we're answering in whether it's those written packets from the past or modern diary entries uh, in the present through platforms like Dscout. There's also all of the context around that, when it happened, where it happened, and you know, countless other things. And to me, that is potentially uh, an innovation because it bridges between uh, the two realms I was uh, once part of and, and will always consider myself part of, which is the the social aspect and the individual aspect. And of course, we can add to that the cultural aspects and so forth and so forth. So potentially, uh, 
if if uh, obviously uh, we we get those data and people agree to provide those data, we can get a much richer picture than ever before about people's behaviors, about the context in which they happened, and so many other things. And and maybe that is a very meaningful step forward in how well we understand people. It makes me realize, and you know, depending on your background, this is not going to be a particularly novel observation, but a lot of research that you know, we do in the, in the field is focused on an individual. And, you know, we might occasionally look at a group of people if we're looking at something that takes place in a family or in a household, maybe some work processes, but we don't seem to research across a network necessarily. Like, at least I haven't come across it. Yeah, this is something that absolutely resonates with me. Uh, again, going back to my my academic days, I was working with an advisor who was doing a lot of what we called dyadic research or couples research because we were, we were working on romantic relationships, dating, online dating, attachment, stuff like that. And fast forward to to today at Wealthfront um where we work where our work is about people's financial lives. Um then if you're if you're married or in a long-term relationship and you have joint finances with your partner, then obviously many of the the questions on your mind, many of the needs you have are joint needs and joint questions. They are not individual needs or individual questions. But all too often, including at Wealthfront and everywhere else I've worked, we do do the research at the individual level. And that is a very partial picture and a very biased picture of of people's people's realities you can imagine that if you have two two people who are in a long-term relationship and you ask each of them separately about their finances and where they're at and where they want to be you may just get very different answers that don't take the other person uh into account enough um You'll also get very interesting answers when you ask each member of that family to report on the other member of that family and what they think the other member uh, believes about, in this case, finance. So I definitely agree that one of the ways in which we can think, among other things, about methodological innovation is the level at which we're conducting the research? Is it the individual level? Is it the couple or dyadic level, the group level? And when should we be focusing on that particular level? And also, should we be, can we develop methods that are uniquely tailored to that level of of research? How can we conduct something like a joint interview in a way that will yield more robust insights? Um, and does it need to be substantially different than how we'd interview each of the individuals within that relationship? And if I was just going to wave my hands and imagine anything as possible, you know, having done a little bit about this topic in, in my career as well, it seems like you know, the family, childhood family upbringing is a huge determining factor for a lot of beliefs and sort of why couples have different approaches because they have different backgrounds. I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, what if you could maybe not literally go back in time, but it'd be interesting while we're just, you know, imagining anything as possible 
to, you know, interview the, the group that's sharing the decision, but also learn about the origins of those assumptions, rules, expectations, beliefs, and so on from, let's just say it's the family that they grew up in. I don't I have no idea how you'd do that from just a, like a recruiting point of view or a logistical point of view or making sense of the data point of view, you know, just thinking about people as networks and where they're or people as uh, being in networks and where a lot of things that drive their behavior come from are not at the individual level. It, it does open it up in a way that I, I don't know how to address. Well, I too struggle with that. And I struggle with even imagining what the methods would look like in order to get at the historical context of an individual or family. But I can tell you this, I have two children and I have more photographs of my children than, I don't know, <laughs> than I ever imagined I, I would have. I have more data, essentially, about my children, and I will always have that, that data, than, than I ever imagined would be, would be possible. The, the richness of what I know about my children and could potentially share is, is crazy. Or another example is uh, we can all go to Google or Facebook and look at years and years worth of history of where we've been, what we were up to, um, what, you know, what we ate and who we hung out with. And so the next generation of researchers will certainly have access to an incredible trove of historical uh, data. Um, hopefully they get the proper permissions to access those data um, and and respect the the privacy of the individuals they're researching. But assuming they do, I actually think it'll be easier than ever before to get such an incredible picture of what led uh, the, the people one is researching to the point where they're at in their life. Um, and if you combine all of those data together with advanced analysis methods where we'd have the support of various fancy machine learning, AI-driven algorithms, then I actually do think that in, in just a few years, it will be feasible to understand people at a level where we've never been before. In particular, what you were just mentioning around uh, where where everything began for those people and how they were raised and 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 how they got to that personal and professional point in their lives so i i do see a glimmers of or a glimpse into this potential future i i often wonder whether it'll be useful or not and and how we'd analyze such data um, and is this truly the, the future of, of our profession? But what I'm sure of is that it'll be a possibility, given everything that uh, we, we know about people and, and, and how we conduct ourselves these days uh, with technology. So we've talked about a couple of things so far, and just very broadly, one is the roles in the, that you're playing, uh, what you're trying to help people accomplish at Wealthfront, and then your broader kind of observation that uh, that in terms of our methods, we're not really focused on them as a practice, as a profession. Are there things that you can do? Because I like what you said, you know, this the, the innovation and methods could come from anywhere. But is it something that uh, there's an opportunity for, for, for Wealthfront, for you, uh, to be pushing methods ahead? So I think that... One of the beneficial results of democratizing research 
as extremely as possible and enabling everyone in the company, whether it's designers, PMs, marketers, or others to conduct incredible research. And I'm fortunate enough to have colleagues who have uh, amazing research chops and they do incredible research that frees up part of the time of the user research team and, and us as user researchers to focus on a, um, some of the more strategic research projects that we have in the company. And it also, or B, it, it enables us to focus on, on research innovation and, uh, either implementing tools that allow for better research to happen. For example, um, better knowledge management of the research we already have and are already uh, doing. Um, and it also enables us potentially to focus more on uh, developing uh, tailored uh, methods or frameworks that work for our context. And fintech is in, in many ways uh, uh, different or, or unique compared to to other areas. And there are certain things uh, that we care uh, deeply about. And so I think that the result of democratizing research, assume, assuming you accept that uh, that is a, a viable route to go down, is that you are able to focus more on on other things, including that innovation I, I mentioned before. So we will definitely continue to try on the user research team to either implement new tools and platforms that are coming out that make us all better researchers or innovate within the company. And, and of course, if we can share uh, those innovations with the broader community uh, in order to develop methods that are better, a better fit, better tailored to what we, we do. I can give an example here of, you know, something we, we care about deeply, I would say in, in FinTech especially is of course around the issue of trust and the measurement of trust, which has, I would say, been a, a tricky thing historically uh, for, for researchers, both in academia and, and industry. At, at Wellfront, we are often handling people's entire uh, life savings, investments. That's a, a very big responsibility, which we take incredibly seriously. Um, and we want to understand how we can earn people's trust, how we can build on that trust, how we can augment it. Um, we want to monitor the trust in, in us and, and understand it deeply. And the measurement of trust, well, measurement in general, is incredibly complex. And so developing great measurements for trust is definitely a, a goal which I'm not sure we've, well, I actually am sure we haven't yet reached at Wellfront and we aspire to do that. Um, I'm not sure if anyone has. Um, I think that as a research community, we can barely agree on how to measure satisfaction. And often we use deeply flawed methods just to do that. And in my opinion, measuring satisfaction is much easier than measuring uh, something like trust. So more to come in the future, I, I hope, including from us. I would love to hear a little bit about maybe a compare and contrast the other places that you mentioned you'd worked, Airbnb and Intercom. You know, what are some of your perspectives on research being applied in very different organizations and what you experienced uh, as a researcher in these different types of companies? 
So for me, Airbnb was an incredible experience. Uh, I think what drew me to Airbnb more than anything was the mission at the time, which I believe is still Airbnb's mission of belong anywhere as an immigrant to this country. And as someone who's traveled uh, quite a bit and, and been to a few places around the world, I definitely know what it feels like not to belong somewhere. And I definitely know what it feels like to feel belonging. And I think that today more than ever before, it's really important to break out of one's bubble, experience other cultures, experience other places, and and hopefully experience that belonging. So to me, as a researcher, Airbnb, I had a very strong connection to to the mission and there are some very unique aspects of of research at airbnb for example airbnb is one of those products where the company's aim is for people to use the app essentially as little as possible and and venture out into the world the way airbnb makes money and grows its platform and its benefits to the world is when people go out to travel, not engage with with the app. And so a lot of the research at Airbnb isn't just about the online app or web experience. It's about the offline experience on the ground. It's about the travel itself. It's about things like the check-in and the check-out experience, or what it's like to go on an experience hosted by someone who lives in that city, and they happen to be experts at uh, making pasta and they want to share their food passions with with the world. Um, and so researching these uh, offline experiences in a cross-cultural settings in almost all countries across the world is a very different experience than some people, I would say, have in, in the UX research uh, industry. Also, I, I credit Airbnb personally as a company founded by two designers and one non-designer, but it's a very design-driven company. And in my mind, Airbnb is one of the best design schools in, in the world without officially being a design school. I learned most of what I know about design and a lot of what I know about research uh, from my time at, at Airbnb. And the travel space is is very challenging and very uh, interesting. And I hope that in this time when people aren't traveling at all, given a global pandemic, I hope we get back to that soon because it makes all of our lives a lot richer and a lot more interesting. And it's some of the most fascinating research I've, I've ever done. Another thing about Airbnb, which is also a question I think in our industry is how does the function of research operate within the larger organization? Um, for example, at Airbnb, research is, is uh, part of the design team, whereas at uh, Intercom, for example, research was reporting into and part of the product function. We also have a bunch of different titles in our industry from uh, experience researcher to design researcher to product researcher, user researcher, and so many other things. And I know we discussed this a lot, but it does make a difference to one's experience, uh, whether they uh, work more closely with product and PMs or more closely with designers and and design leaders. It really influences one's experience, uh, the things you can learn, your your relationships with those functions and, and, and so forth. But there's a caveat to that, I think, at, 
in, in looking at the two companies that you're comparing and having not worked at either of them, this is, you know, uh, definitely outsider hypothesizing, but I could see it be, if I worked at Airbnb, I'd want to be working with, I mean, as you said, it's a design, it's a strong design company. And I think of Intercom as a strong product company. So it's different where it's different sort of who you report up to or what organization or what roles you're working closely with. But also that is different in different organizations based on just the strength and maturity of those different practices. Yes, (laughs) I, I, I agree. So just to clarify, you know, you said there's a lot of different titles. Is there a relationship between what your job title is and this issue sort of of who you report up to, where the research organization sits? Is that impacting the how titles are, are applied to researchers? So I think the titles we get as researchers are a function of a few things. They're a function of the organization. They're a function of its philosophy, They're a function of how the organization itself is designed and what the emphasis is on and what type of relationships the organization wants to cultivate more um, and how the company wants to be perceived as well. I want to mention something about our work at Wellfront these days. Some relationships are, in my opinion, so natural that it's surprising that they don't just occur within companies uh, and don't just happen and don't just thrive uh, without any particular intervention or organizational design. And yet more often than not, those relationships are missing. At Wellfront, we recently created something we call the Research Guild. And the Research Guild is composed of user researchers like myself, um, consumer insights, which is typically the the side of research uh, um, that kind of belongs organizationally to marketing, or perhaps in some cases product and data science. Now, again, the relationship between user research, consumer insights, and data science, in my opinion, is 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 natural and obvious, and yet all too often. It's not a thriving relationship. It might even be a a very broken uh, relationship. And so what we're trying to create at Wealthfront these days is is a, a much closer relationship between those functions because ultimately we are all trying to do the same thing, which is enable every single person in the company to understand our clients and potential clients better, uh, to be closer to them, um, to hear them, in a variety of ways, uh, whether qualitative or, or quantitative, it doesn't matter. High level, we all have the same mission. And, and so maybe more, maybe something more important than the titles we have and constant discussions around what UX is or what UX isn't or who is or who isn't a researcher. I think we might want to focus more on uh, the collaboration between functions and the relationships between functions. And to really um, amplify these truly important, crucial relationships between, for example, data science and and user research. It makes all of our jobs better. It creates better outcomes. It creates a better understanding of our users and our clients. And it's it's one more thing I I haven't always experienced in my career and, and I wish I I had. So definitely trying to 
to correct that now at Wealthfront and and create those those beneficial cross-functional relationships. So how will this guild enable those relationships? When I'm again, when I'm not on parental leave and, and actually working, we have both leadership meetings for that guild with the the managers or directors of each each group um, to keep each other uh, in the know about projects and things going on and what we're doing and how we can uh, help each other and, and collaborate better. And we also have meetings between all of the guild members where we can provide each other with uh, feedback on, on projects, whichever stage those projects are at, um, or ideas for new, new directions or support where support can be, can be provided. Um, and, and anything else we, we can come up with. Um, and just by having those couple of, of meetings, um, I think we've already seen so much benefit um, in terms of every project we conduct being that much stronger, thanks to much broader feedback, much deeper feedback, um, and a variety of perspectives from people who have a very diverse uh, set of skills academic backgrounds, industry experience, um, and to focus on on a variety of things in, in their day-to-day. How did you come to use the, the term guild to describe this? So I'm, I'm all about uh, etymology and very into, into words. I think what drew me to the term guild, and the reason I, I like that suggestion, is that in most uh, dictionary definitions of guild, you have the notion of an association of people who are in the pursuit of a common goal. And I think that's what's important to remember, that data scientists, consumer insights, or marketing research people, user research professionals, we are all in pursuit of a common goal at the, at the high level. And we should be collaborating as closely as possible in order to, to, to reach that goal. Um, and... I think all too often we don't understand each other's work well enough. We don't collaborate well enough and leverage each other's work. We might sometimes repeat each other's work or or, or have like dual projects which are quite similar in their in their outcomes. And so by refocusing efforts on that common goal and leveraging each other's knowledge and skills, I think there's something very powerful in that, which definitely exists in a bunch of companies in in tech and otherwise, but could be could be stronger for sure. So the thing about podcasts, I think, is that you know we're having a conversation on the day that we're having it, and someone may come to this at any point, you know, in the very near future or later on. So you've referenced our particular moment in time a couple of times. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. It's really changing, you know, everything about everything for everybody, right? Work from home. People are sheltering in place right now in the Bay Area, and it, it it's forcing a lot of questions, you know, for some and maybe not for others about research, what we're doing right now, sort of how do we even think about, how do we think about research, our profession in a time where these other things are going on? And I'm wondering if that's something that, that you've reflected on, if you have a point of view about today, about research today. Yeah, I've, I've definitely reflected on this, especially about a couple of points. The first is that I've been part of and seen lots of discussion around um, research ethics in this 
kind of period of, of time. Um, people are potentially in a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety. And so there's the question of, it's perhaps a philosophical question even, of whether we should be approaching our users at a time like this and what can we make of people's responses uh, when they're in such a, a, a different and often distressed state of mind um, given given the, the pandemic? Um, my view on this is that uh, it's it's crucial to continue to, to continue research at such a, at such a time certainly with more sensitivity and and a realization that there are probably limitations to to the research but as someone who works in financial technology at a time when uh, the financial markets are incredibly incredibly volatile i am personally happy that we are continuing at Wellfund to be attuned to what our clients uh, need and what they hope for the future and, and to provide that for them because it's exactly in this type of situation where we want to to best serve our our clients and help them avoid potential mistakes that could be very costly to them so I think there's a need for much greater sensitivity at this kind of time. Um, but I think researchers have an important role uh, in pushing forward with research as much as possible, um, maybe taking on additional projects that uh, that benefit uh, the, the, the health uh, or medical services uh, community and, and so forth. The other thing is, I think... A big part of this past maybe decade in user research has been around research ops and how we can conduct research in a more lean uh, fashion, uh, fast-paced, uh, lightweight. For many companies, in-person research, travel, uh, it, it, it's a core part of the research practice. And yet today, we're having to grapple with with this fundamental problem that we can't do that anymore and we're forced to develop new tools and new ways of of getting to and connecting with our users even when we can't do that in person and i think it's important for every every company and every team and every researcher to think about those different contingencies and what can we do in a situation where we want to connect with the user, we want to understand them, but we, we have to do so in a, in a remote interview or some other technique, which doesn't include uh, meeting in person. And this goes back to our discussion around methods and methodological innovation and what we can, what we can do around that. I personally hope that in the future, when maybe this time uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, other techniques become more of an established uh, practice, that we will be able to share spaces and share ideas and, and feel together and conduct kind of pseudo in-person research, even if we're not. And I think there's something very, very powerful in that. In, in fact, maybe that will drive part of the, 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 the growth finally in, in those types of methods, this type of event. 
I think it's going to be very interesting to see the impact of this global pandemic on how we conduct our our research, because ultimately our profession is all about connecting with people and understanding them. And that is much, much harder to do when we're all quarantined in our own houses, waiting for this to, to end. Well, I thank you so much for your time. And Noam, it's fun to go really deep into a few things. I appreciate you going all the way to the nooks and crannies of some of these ideas that you're thinking about. It gives us a lot to chew on. Thank you so much for being on Dollars to Donuts. Thank you as well. It was a real pleasure. I've been waiting for this and I'm really glad you invited me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tell your colleagues about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all the places where pods are catched. Visit portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. And we're on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd. <laughs>